These are the chronicles of the journey we take together. The journey of Steamheart, and one we invite you to take with us through Through the the wind. wind door. Now, among the smaller bets, specifically in regards to James and Abigail, that caught my eye in this chapter. First, we start with James's narration, and he's reflecting on the journey that they took from where they were at the end of Secret Rooms, their brief interlude with Kaufman, and then their trip to NIA headquarters with him in tow. And James is talking about his frustration that Abigail wants to talk with strangers, quote unquote, about what they've been through, even though he views it as top secret and eyes only. And yet I feel like this says more about the kind of people they are rather than having any basis in truth. Undoubtedly. James is already unlikely to socialize, just as we saw during his time in Weirwood and in a good portion of secret rooms. Abigail herself wants to be a leader, which requires a certain level of socialization. She is, in fact, far more social. And let's face it, James already highlights that the uncomfortableness between them persists. So it's not surprising that Abigail would want to talk with other people instead of him, Mm. especially after a mostly quiet 500-mile trip. And in those days, you don't even have the radio to fill the silence. Yeah, exactly. Or anything else. You don't have, a say, a podcast to fill the silence. (laughs) On top of that, in the case of Kaufman, well, he's practically a celebrity. She wanted his autograph, so obviously she'd want to talk to him. And given his standing as well, it also feels like You know, he's not just anybody, so she would feel comfortable with revealing this important stuff that they're literally coming to the NIA to report to Thomas and Sarah Arlington. Right. He's a known quantity. Like, Mm -hmm. he's not, like, someone who they're going to have to figure out. We know who he is. We know who he reports to. And, like, that seems to be more than enough. So Mm. it's also, like... With the new addition to the second edition of the handbook discussing the existence of Windows, and I speak about like the in-universe second edition of the Mm -hmm. handbook that like we hear about within the cartographer's handbook as a book in New Century. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Now my eyes have gone crossed. Um, (laughs) And we haven't even brought Windows into it, but like now I'm about to. So the second edition discusses the existence of Windows. So, with that in mind, their experience with one and the otherworldly isn't quite as wholly unknown as it might have been in other circumstances. And by talking with folks about it, you never know what new information might turn up. They were, after all, able to translate Krieger's notes due to a chance connection with at least one or two people at the end of Secret Rooms. And in point of fact, that whole thing 
like they reported to Annie the complete details of their encounter at the House of Respect at mm. the end of Secret Rooms. Mm. When they recount some of the details for the purpose of technically letting the reader know, but also to report directly to the Arlingtons in chapters five and six, it doesn't change the fact that technically this information is kind of already out there to begin with. Like, who would mm. they be talking with in general? They would be talking with other cartographers. They would be talking with members of the army. They're not sharing these details with, like, the people in the towns that they pass through as a part of their duties. Having said all this, I'm reminded of the way Frank had to kill a rogue RSA officer alluded to in the pages of Arlington, as well as Annie's words about how fragile what they've put together is, and the riots in D.C. Just because individuals are in the RSA hierarchy or any official hierarchy, doesn't mean they might not have strong reactions to, say, the starlit eyes. This is something that we'll get into as we discuss the next batch of chapters. The point that you make and are making about the fact that, hey, Thomas is already trying to get it out there, that mm. weirder things exist beside the Wendigo, like, even in Secret Rooms as well, they were doing that whole thing of collecting stories and trying to take, you know, people's stories potentially at face value mm. because yeah. some of it might be real and some of it might be not. This is the information that they would be passing on to Unicorn. I will also add a detail I only found out as a result of checking some of the ancillary stuff on the New Century Moldiver's website. I originally thought that the story of the White Tiger told to Abigail, James, and Annie was meant to be foreshadowing to the fact that there was a portal open to the world of Rama. As it turns out, the story of both the White Tiger and the Mothman are actually real-world legends from the West Virginia region. And it's also uh, surprising in some ways that James is like saying, oh, we shouldn't be broadcasting this so openly, when he was the one who raised alarm at finding out that information wasn't spread in the handbook about the Wendigos. So, mm. you know, I know that this is something quite separate to the Wendigos, which, like, the Wendigos are a known thing. So I think for James, at least in that moment, it feels pertinent to give people as much information as exists about this thing that is universally present, whereas the Windows are quite a sort of highly specific point which they don't have all the details on so there's certainly a lot of points in like both sides of the argument which like is a weird thing to say but yeah but on the other hand as you yourself point out in your notes mm. um james has a resistance to broadcasting anything to do with their quote-unquote starlit eyes yeah and that may be less of a concern that comes from oh hey weird things exist out there mm. as rather we have a weird thing that is currently inhabiting our bodies yeah and he is possibly concerned about the reaction of the wrong kinds of people to revealing oh look at what i have behind my eye and somebody else going it's evil kill it or something like that <laughs> so and this might actually be a sort of 
early indication that James, as we got a glimpse of at the end of Secret Rooms, is ill at ease with this development because it means that he has lost something that was a defining part of who he was, his mm. abilities of perception and his abilities as a doctor. Whereas yeah, that, that is we... something that's even covered in the chapter itself, that he's mm. had to relearn how to be a doctor mm. with missing one eye. He's naturally frustrated by this turn of events because he has sacrificed inadvertently to have the starlit eye, but so far he gets no advantage from having the starlit eye. Mm. And it makes it more difficult for him to do the things that he is really good at. Yeah, and conversely, while we haven't really explored this a lot up to this point, Abigail has already turned her attention to what this starlit eye is providing her with. We heard about her seeing lights in the far distance in mm. the final chapters of Secret Room. So she is actually looking to what can we do with this now that it's here and talking with other people reflects that. Whereas James, I think, is ill at ease with it. So he is probably, like in any company, a bit more reticent to kind of talk and draw attention to this. Well, this will become a, a component of the stuff that we talk about in later chapters, so I don't want to go mm. too deep into it. Yeah. But I feel like the experience that Abigail and James have had and will continue to have as things develop, I think that they're both equally interested in trying to figure out their eyes. They say they're equally interested in trying to figure out their eyes, it's just that for some reason, Abigail has had more success by just sort of letting the experience suffuse her to a certain extent. She's able to be, I don't know, still enough or that she manages to tap into something in her own calmness that give her perspective on, okay, I'm getting some kind of input from her eye. And James putting all of his logic towards it and using the things that he is the best at has not had the same kind of, like, he hasn't necessarily had anything in mm. regards to that. It hasn't compromised who she is in the same way that this has compromised James, or at the very least compromised who he believes himself to be, because mm. it compromises a central function for James and as we know a good deal of him is about function and mm. he prides he it's not necessarily even that he prides himself it's that he what Alex has said a lot is that everyone in the new century wants to be of use mm. that's a sort mm. of almost as much of a defining universal quality to these books and these characters as the theme of universal grief but for James, that is really powerfully felt. A certain song that you and I both really like in <laughs> Encanto of mm. Who Am I If I Can't Be of Service mm, speaks mm, to mm. that. So, yes, uh, it's and it's considering without necessarily giving a, going too far into the story of Encanto, that 
in that particular moment, we find out that that character is losing her ability that has become a sort of pillar of the community. And she is sort of feeling this. So, yes, this is the point at which I am drawing in Encanto to apply to Steamheart because (laughs) I saw the bridge and I went for it. Yeah, no, fair enough. There's a reason why uh, that particular movie resonates so heavily with you and I and with many other people in our circle as well. There is another thing that comes to mind when considering James. We already know that his personality and ability is based off Sherlock Holmes, most specifically Robert Downey Jr.'s version of that character. My favorite depiction has always been played by Johnny Lee Miller in the American TV show Elementary. The modern world provides different challenges for a character usually depicted in the 19th century, and the amount of stimulus available to such a brain is part of what turns that version of Sherlock into a drug addict. But regardless, this Sherlock, as well as other depictions of him, talk about the cost of having a brain like his, and that making use of it is the best way to feel like it is not simply a burden. As mentioned in one episode, What is you being amazing? No, 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 I didn't say I was amazing. I said I was remarkable. The things that I do, the things that you care about, um, you think that I do them because I'm a good person. I do them because it would hurt too much not to. Because you're a good person. No, it hurts, Agatha. All of this. Everything I see, everything I hear, touch, smell, the conclusions that I'm able to draw, the things that are revealed to me, the ugliness. My work focuses me. It helps. You say that I'm using my gifts. I say I'm just treating them. What I'm saying is that it must be incredibly frustrating to have been given a new power that he cannot make use of at all, and moreover, he cannot even manage to bring his brain to bear on solving this conundrum. I will say that the loss of an eye has affected Abigail to a degree, Mm. but it's not quite like she is a sharpshooter like Annie and Frank are. Mm. It has decreased her ability to be useful in combat but as this chapter itself goes into she has been diving into rising up the ranks and being more and more of a leader Mm. there are aspects to being a leader which do not require her to be in combat she has still managed to be entirely of use even lacking an eye much in the way that say Nick Fury himself is able to provide good advice and direction, despite the fact that he also lost an eye prior to Avengers, of all things. So, mm. Through an event that I'm sure was just as grand as any of us could have imagined it would be. <laughs> oh, okay, well, there you go. Doesn't that particular development of Captain Marvel make that one bit in The Winter Soldier just really funny in, like, sort of retrospect, where it becomes this big character moment, and it's like, 
no one can know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway. Um, Getting back once more to Steamheart. The second little tidbit that crossed my desk and made me stop and think for a little bit is when James is relating uh, Virgil's fate to Butler. Here's another one of those cases where what is in the written account differs from what is in the audio drama. In the book, Butler says, I'm glad to hear he found his place. But in the audio drama, the words Butler uses are, well, ain't that special now? And my response to his response was bemusement. The words he says and the way he says them makes it sound like he's annoyed or being sarcastic. And that's unusually antagonistic for Frank, who tends to get along with everybody and I think was just fine with being chummy with Virgil back in secret rooms. But thinking about it, I'm remembering that interaction between Frank and Virgil in terms of the assignment that Virgil was given, and he didn't know to wash his hands before cooking, which is likely what James meant about people not getting dysentery as a result of his new assignment. Mm. And I think it was even Frank in Secret Rooms before he was leaving was like... I'm glad I'm not here for lunch. David, look after Virgil here for me. It's his first day. Make sure he washes his goddamned hands. Pardon my French. You betcha, Frank. Like, all of that is probably, like, part of just his particular brand of dry humor. <laughs> but I do think that finding your place, quote-unquote, is supportive enough as a sentiment, but can come across as potentially patronizing in certain contexts, as if Virgil isn't a person but a cog to be put into a very specific slot and never veer outside of that role. And that's probably over-examining it, but I think I like the change all the same. I think a degree of snark and expressing satisfaction in the good fortune of someone who did at one point ambush you and try to rob you once upon a time is... Fair enough, and I think we can trust Butler's pre-established character enough to believe that he is happy for Virgil underneath any conversational humour. Yeah, in general, Frank doesn't really have a bad bone in his body. Like, the whole experience with being in a shootout with the entire group, killing two of them, and then bringing Carl and Virgil into the RSA... We did have a conversation with that at one point about the unusual dissonance going on in terms of, you know, like, these people possibly killed others, but Annie went out of her way to save their lives. And she gave a perfectly good reason for doing so, which is, in fact, that entire moment is highlighted in the flashback that happens about not being able to rebuild anything with more dead bodies and everything like that. All of that makes sense. It's just at the same time, it's hard to imagine Virgil actually being a threat to anybody. Like, just listening to his voice back then is just like, he seems like the most personable person and like someone that might have been forced to pick up a gun in order to rob travelers to help them and their wives survive through whatever else was going on. Even as foul-mouthed as Carl was, we still loved Carl. So it's hard not to want 
to wish Virgil well on top of that, uh, regardless of the fact that he might be clueless about proper uh, sanitary procedures. <laughs> I mean, it almost also makes me feel like that's a, a thing that's added in because of Alex's proclivities, because I remember that moment when we were interviewing them the other day, and he's like, wash your hands! <laughs> <laughs> of course, this did predate everything 2020. I mean, yeah, washing but... hands, I recommend that no matter what decade you're in, just yes. generally sound advice. But, like, there's a reason why in Stone Spring Maidens, that particular moment of, they only figured out washing their hands, like, is there post-pandemic, you know? It's like... <laughs> Good idea, especially good idea. Don't do the other thing. It's it just yeah. just don't. It kind of blows my mind when I was finding out about how many people didn't, because that's definitely something that I learned. I was I don't necessarily wash my hands as rigorously as some people do. I at one point found out like the special regimen that people work in kitchens, even if you're just like a prep cook, not even like a chef or anything like that about mm. the procedures you have to do with the heat of the water and the soap because mm. they're working with food. And it's just like, okay, I'm not quite like that. But like, I go to the bathroom, I wash my hands. I handle something dirty, I wash my hands. I don't know who these people are that are going around never washing their hands ever. Yeah, I mean... Like, it blows my mind that anybody would be doing that. Yeah, I mean, like... Heck, I wasn't even working in the kitchen. I was a essentially a waiter at a pub here in Oxford uh, in the before times, and it was made sure that like even stuff that would seem relatively minor, like you wash your hands before you handle any of these plates because mm -hmm. that's important, y'all, yeah. and like it's important. <laughs> I I don't know how more complicated this could possibly be a point to make. It just wash your hands. And we understand why it is that Thomas views the majority of humanity as children. Um, two more small things on the list before we get into the big meat of this particular chapter. James and Abigail episode of uh, Through the Window. <laughs> I mean, their main characters will have plenty more moments to talk about them. This is just the stuff that they were involved in that are parts of this particular chapter. Mm. The added chapters to Secret Rooms, where we see James as a boy, finally now have the greater context necessary when we get to the part where James is beholding the Steamcraft, in particular Steamheart. He's name-checking the Oceanic, but also the Nautilus, the marvelous submarine that so enchanted him as a boy when he was reading Jules Verne. That's why these earlier chapters are important and i don't necessarily know where they would have been in steamheart had alex gone through with the original plan to make these a part of the larger book but the fact that you and i have already gone through them as being a part of the definitive edition to secret rooms means that this is very literally a callback from that book that works really well for this moment mm. so unless those previous chapters would have actually come before this chapter here it makes it work better to have already seen this a couple of books before and now see this reaction of james to steamheart 
if the early days of James and Abigail had been in Steamheart and they had been put after this chapter, I don't necessarily know if it would have hit the same way. Mm. I'm I'm really struggling because I was there at the time and I remember the like extra chapters for Secret Rooms Definitive Edition being new episodes of Steamheart, but I for the life of me can't remember mm. if it was before, after, what have you. As it turns out, no evidence from those before times remain on the internet, so I had to go directly to the source. According to Alex himself, the original layout was The Last Survivor, followed by Abigail's first chapter, better known as The Children of Clearwater, then James's first chapter, The Lonely Boy, and finally, the chapter we are discussing now. So as it turns out, we would have heard about James's reading habits beforehand. And, of course, the layout overall would have been different to better fit into the story. But as discussed in the previous Through the Window episode, that opening scene with James and Abigail meeting Dr. Kaufman works really well. So once more, we both assert that the ways things ended up were better. Those chapters strengthen secret rooms, make things tidier overall, and make our first moment with James and Abigail in the story very dramatic and cinematic. I like the symmetry between the two moments, and I am grateful for James's voyage on the Oceanic no longer sitting so close alongside this moment in his story as it was originally intended. The similarities between his enchantment at the mechanical marvels of each craft would diminish the impact of seeing Steamheart for the first time, or the other, as the case may be, because, like, as such, having the Nautilus and the Oceanic present in the very first chapter we ever meet James in echoes forward to this moment here, and the lifetime between them now feels more real because the reader hasn't just experienced it. Like, if they were literally chapters apart from one another, then it would feel a bit more manufactured than it would yeah. be. Whereas now, it feels like a very natural sort of lifetime of memories, in the same way that, like, James tasting the peppermint, ah, like, yeah, sort yeah. of, like, this moment here almost feels like a sort of mechanical peppermint moment for James. The result is that enhanced sense of childlike wonder that takes the reader and James back to a time before all the horrors of the present world, even as its technological innovation proclaims an optimistic vision of the future. Your words on this subject are making me think about another book that you teasingly referred to earlier. And oh. it's going to be so long since we're going to be able to cover that particular book. Um, but you know exactly what I'm talking about in terms of the influences of Jules Verne on a young James <laughs> and alternate ways that that could have gone. Uh, and I will stop talking about it from here because this look, is... <laughs> Greg, it's not like we can jump forward to the future for this. You, we have to We have to get there linearly. Yeah. This will be fine. Yeah, okay. All right. <laughs> Abigail reacts differently to Steamheart. She is clearly intrigued by all of this. She is clearly intrigued by Harry herself. But she also has this moment 
where she is experiencing some sort of PTSD response, perhaps claustrophobia. This is likely from the experience at the House of Verstecht, although in this case, manifesting not through the, the deep darkness that they would have been in at the time, since the inside of Steamheart is lit up as a result of Harry's turning it on. Here, it's the cramped confines, and this feels like a bit of foreshadowing to something that's going to become relevant later in the book. It's another bullet point on the list of contrasts between James and Abigail, without taking away much from Abigail's sincere admiration of Harry's work. She's not like having this sort of like, I don't know, this fancy thing to my liking, no sorry, or anything like that. <laughs> like, she does see this as like, she literally says, like, this really is something else in the best possible way. But unlike James's complete reverence towards every aspect of this machine, like, he, like James calls it like a masterpiece among masterpieces or something like that. And a masterpiece like, filled with masterpieces, I think. Yeah. Phrases which, which I think is probably as definitive a 10 as you can get. <laughs> and Abigail like admires it greatly, but she can't help but feel a human discomfort inside it. And I think that's a really like it's in keeping with her character mm. and it also honestly just makes the machine feel even more real when we know that it is not a wholly perfect thing that everyone will immediately completely fall in love with obviously to a certain extent this has come up before in terms of the conversations we've had our main characters aren't necessarily they're atypical of the world that they live in Basically, they're more likely to respond positively to things they have not seen before. It's a very Tempest vibe. Oh, brave new world with such creatures, or in this case, creations in it, and everything like that. Alex's protagonists are often symbolic of the best aspects of humanity, the way that we wish everyone could be, instead mm -hmm. of judgmental of technology or vaccines i don't trust it you know i believe in god and something else i don't know <laughs> like the, the nightmare bizarro version of abigail is like i don't know i think this steam heart is a ploy by ee e. putting microchips in me oh dear <sighs> no abigail it, is not that i no. like yeah, I apologize. Okay. No, 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 it's okay. Again, I just, I would, I would rather talk about the purity and goodness of Steamheart than have to keep mm. relating it back to the stupidity present in our own world. Let's Spe instead... Talk. Speaking of the purity of Steamheart... Oh yeah, okay, no, no, that's, that's fair. Let's talk about Harry. Literally the person that this chapter is named after. Mm -hmm. I refer, as I said, to the title. Given Alex's proclivities, I have to wonder if the choice of this title for the chapter is a nod to the book The Subtle Knife by Philip Pullman, since you and I already know that Pullman's books are significant to our creators. Mm -hmm. 
I didn't necessarily understand why the eponymous knife in this circumstance was referred to as the subtle knife, given what I grew to understand about its abilities in Pullman's world. But Mm. having gone to take a look at the definitions of the word subtle, I can definitely see in the case of Harry, how she qualifies for many of those definitions, including difficult to understand, clever and indirect, having keen perception or insight, and finally, highly skillful. When you lay it out all like that, it kind of feels like the perfect word to, and here's that word again, encapsulate Harry. Mm. Though I wouldn't say that Harry is indirect. Yes, the way her mind works can be difficult to immediately understand in that she operates on a super-focused level with her work while also requiring moments of withdrawal, which can come across as her losing focus, when in many ways it's actually the opposite. She's becoming supremely focused on like a particular chain of thoughts. And, and, so, and not focused on the rest of the world. That, that's it. Is that like her zoning out is actually her narrowing her zone to a space where she can really navigate a certain set of problems mm-hmm. in totality. This might make her seem like she's not fully present at times, which may have the capacity to be described as indirect in a sort of tangential sort of way. Mm. But Harry is actually relatively plain speaking. Her description of others and the way she remembers them hits us at some simple truths about them, which can be surprisingly successful at getting to the heart of who they are. She's insightful about people, like even if she's not necessarily used to like engaging with people outside of like a certain small and known set of people inside her life. And while she can be shy, she nevertheless speaks honestly with folks when she does speak with them. Mm. And as I said, when she focuses on something, she really focuses on it, which means that she can be quite direct with the subject of her focus when she chooses to be. I thought about the reason why I wrote down the word indirect. Well, I I wrote down the word indirect because it was literally the definition that I Mm. came to when looking at it in the dictionary. And looking at your response as to why you think that she is, in fact, very direct rather than indirect, I think the reason why the word still fits to me is that people are still going to view her differently through what she chooses to focus on. That may not necessarily be true for our protagonists, James, Abigail, everybody else we already know that she has a a incredibly good rapport with frank as a result of arlington and it seems like she's developed a similar rapport with annie thanks to that whole moment where uh she's talking about annie calling her sparks and her (laughs) really appreciating that that's so cute yeah it is very cute but it's also still very clear that other people might be put off by harry's manners the way harry interacts with the world and therefore might view her as being off or indirect or whatever so it's a little bit the difference in how people perceive her rather than how she actually is necessarily yeah this 
the words that come to mind because I learned of them and their meaning earlier this week and like someone with a word of the day calendar I like to apply them where I can it's the difference between a sort of phenomenal understanding of uh Harry and a noumenal understanding of Harry in that Mm. it's like I would say that indirect may be like what others perceive her as whereas to those who know her there is actually a directness that can be appreciated which other people may be blind to because they will define her as they see her not as she is it's kind of how order and chaos are two reflections of each other and very often particularly when we talk about order and chaos in terms of science and the natural world even as we see a chaotic thing happen very often we we come to discover is that what appears to be on the outside as chaos still has an underlying order to it that we can Mm. tap into if we look close enough at it but Mm. you have to put the effort in to understand something in order to see that yes there is something central that this entire thing revolves around it's just you have to care enough about it to try to understand it you have to care mm. about Harry in order to understand that she's not as chaotic as she may seem. She's not as disruptive as she may seem. If you're not using your empathy in order to assist yourself with interacting with someone, then it doesn't surprise that you would look at Harry and all you would see is the disruption she causes. People have a proclivity and a tendency to take the other people that they will engage with in their lives or just even pass by fleetingly and slot them into labels like Mm. it's the reason why like everyone always says you can care about and conceptualize 10 people or even a hundred but like a million is difficult to grasp onto unless we are applying a very active level of empathy we can't necessarily pass by a crowded street and conceptualize the wealth of emotion and history and all the things that make up a person into the complex person that they are. Mm. So in order to, and you know, that's why I, that's why I refer to the motorbikes that pass by as noisy Wendigos. Like it's just, (laughs) it's, you know what it is? It's convenient. It's a matter of convenience, but even in a non-judgmental way, it's a way we navigate the day. Otherwise, we're overloaded with the concept of trying to pass out and understand. So we create these stereotypes or just these mm. like categories that this person is the waiter, this person is a pedestrian, this person is a jackass driver. Like all of these this things. This person is a crazy person. You can't talk to them. Yeah, like all all of that and. That's how we tend to just sort of populate the perceived world in our minds because it's kind of like quite boggling. And mm-hmm. the the trick is to try and sort of work against that human impulse and try to actually sort of find a way to practice empathy. Mm-hmm. But for a lot of people, and certainly in a climate such as this, they won't be predisposed to do that they will 
do the convenient thing, they will conclude that what they see and what they are inclined to think of a person is what that person is, Mm. and they won't interrogate that further. But it is the good fortune for us that we do meet people who take that extra step, and once they make one step, they'll make another and another until we build up a profile that is constantly evolving as we continue to know these people or as we continue to change ourselves that conversation between people as we assess ourselves and assess others is essentially the foundation of empathy i originally started writing this long editorial insert about needing to put the work in to understand others before realizing if i just kept listening Toby had already made a very cogent explanation on his own. This, once more, is an example of why us working together on this podcast is better. We may think similarly, but not identically. Even neurotypical people fuck up communicating and socializing all the time, and often blame others for being unique individuals rather than thinking exactly like that other person. This is what causes issues between religious differences, racial differences, gender differences, sexual differences, class differences, and many, many others. And just like all those other things, we have to embrace the diversity and not try to homogenize thought. Because down that road leads only harm and stagnation. End of soapbox, and back to the story. Something that this chapter does and is going to continue to do that has not been in previous books, it gives us a chance to see Harry's internal life, her Mm. thinking process, her mind. Mm. Every time that we've seen her previously, it's through the journal entry of Thomas or Frank. And now here we get to see those layers, which we only perceived from the outside but harry gets to voice to us directly as an aside yeah this is a phenomenal segue into the next set of notes (laughs) (laughs) yes i i appreciate that um by putting us in her head alex gives her thoughts a distinct framing they overlap often or exist without pause He plays with dimension, making one thought come more from left speaker or right in places. We get a clear, maybe clear is the wrong word, we get a more in-depth exploration as to how her mind works, how she thinks. When she goes into that internal place, we hear the music that is associated with it. And in her mind, she specifically associated with going to see colors Mm. because we're in an audio medium. We need to have the music to let us know this transition, this liminal space is occurring here in terms of wherever she is presently. But she narrates to us that going to that internal mind palace or whatever you want to call it is associated with colors and 
reading this, rereading this, it makes me wonder if Harry's spells are some overlap of autism and epilepsy as just having just a thumbnail sketch into looking into this a little further. Those that have epileptic fits often see bright lights or colors. It's just that in Harry's case, when she gets non-responsive and goes inside, she doesn't seem to lose control of her body in the same way that people with epilepsy do. But I, I do understand that even though those with autism can perhaps be more likely to have that particular additional condition, that it can definitely manifest in different ways other than someone losing muscular control and falling down. Mm. I appreciate that the expression of her internal thought doesn't just replicate the way we have seen James's mind operate. James is undoubtedly on the spectrum as well. We even talked about this earlier when we were exploring with the possibility of Jeremy being on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And the way James's mind operates at such a speedy rate and with an impressive eye for detail is frequently commented on by the people around him. But while James's thoughts speak with a fast and eloquent manner of speech that emphasizes deconstructive analysis, that's not what we see happening with Harry's thoughts. Her comments overlap, yes, and they leave little room for pause, but that doesn't mean she's speaking rapidly as she narrates them. It's more like her thoughts flow into one another, which simulates the way she loses herself in her thoughts during one of her spells. She joins one thought to another with no room made for exiting or leaving off at a previous insight. And her thoughts are often about constructive ideas or approaches to things. She's building things in her mind rather than deconstructing the situation around her and forming responses to them that are immediately actionable, like James does. James is much more sort of externally fixated than internally mm. when he is really sort of lost and not even lost but sort of fixated on his thoughts it's healthy and appropriate that different neurodivergent characters showcase different manners of introspection and thought processes rather than them being painted with one broad all-encompassing paintbrush one of the things that i was trying to remember because again because it has been so long since we listened to and discussed Secret Rooms, is how much of James's own internal process we saw as a product of the narration of the audio drama. Because I, I do remember that there are definitely parts, as you said a moment ago, where James is talking fast and his own thoughts are overlapping, not quite illustrated to the listener of the audio drama in the same way that we're having what's going on with Harry right now. As you say, there are differences between the two of them. Mm. But I'm having a hard time remembering at this moment if the stuff that I remember is actually from Steamheart, where we get a whole lot more of that internal stuff in general because of the multiple narrators that you're going to see going throughout the book or how much of it we actually saw 
originally in secret rooms. I feel like I need to go back to those moments where it's clearly James talking and seeing if we get exactly the same indications or if it's more measured in general because of the whole focus on the journal format and everything. Mm. I would suggest that if we are to see that, then it's in the extra chapters that were originally intended to be in Steamheart, but now are present in the definitive edition. That that might be it, yeah. Yeah, I think that the things we see of him as a young man, young boy in the start of the book, and I think the bit that comes to mind for me, which actually runs counter to what I was saying earlier about James not necessarily having his like thought processes applied to internal introspection. But the thing that comes to mind is when he is examining his feelings for Lucy and Abigail, I think. Sort that of, he, yeah. Yeah, so he is sort of going, is it an infatuation? Is it, uh, he is trying to sort of, it's almost like a deconstruction of it. So mm. those moments are there. I think here, the point of the moment is to explore Harry's headspace because it's important for us to develop that empathy. For Mm -hmm. James, I think a lot of Secret Rooms is very much sort of very driven into, like, you know, the action of what he does as he goes through and seeing how, like, he talks it through. So, Yeah, actually, to a certain extent, the biggest difference between James and Harry is that they both have intense intellectual introspective processes it's just that james is very rapid fire quick like that yeah. moment specifically in secret rooms this is how you think like this but faster poor you <laughs> yes no that's that's precisely it like james is much more about finding the next thing and actioning it whereas harry is in the workshop harry yes. is like she, she's she often... takes as much time she takes mm. as much time as she needs to figure something out before coming back into the real world and implementing it. And you see that when the like when someone questions, like, "What are you going to do with your machines?" and we see the three different responses mm-hmm. of yeah, Tesla it's... wants to develop them, Edison yeah. wants to sell them. Like, there's no yeah. point in creating something unless you can profit from it somehow. Yeah, and Harry's and response is take care of them. Of course, uh, she is leaning more towards Tesla's way of thinking, but like, it's like it's a similar thought of like developing slash taking care of them. You can sort of interpret like as actually being almost one and the same. But mm. like for Tesla, it's very utilitarian, whereas Harry feels the soul of her creation a lot. I more. mean, she keeps yeah. referring to Steamheart as my baby. So yeah, and <laughs> and I think that like there's that that like steamheart has application she of course she does like harry does that but like her emphasis is to take care of steamheart which is this mm-hmm. feeling of like it's difficult to know how that will apply when steamheart is actually out in the open out in the field it's like harry has been in the workshop for so long and we are now getting to sort of we know what Harry will do with Steamheart in a vacuum, but unlike James, we haven't necessarily seen an emphasis on the application. It's just the 
of that that place of restoration and refinement and like healing that like Harry's feels like she is concerned with with her creations. There is, of course, another significance to why Harry makes things and why she feels about them the way she does. But I'm going to save that for later, when Toby and I can have a discussion about Harry's creative impulse and how it manifests in Chapter 8. It does relate to stuff we already learned back in Arlington, but it will work better when we see the additional data points and the emotions associated with it. I feel like when we get to this part in the story, we're going to talk a little bit about the connection or the dichotomy between Thomas and Harry going out into the world and Harry Mm. driving Steamheart out into the world. But again, we'll get into that when once the text is there to back it up. Yeah. (laughs) Um, More things about Harry. It made me chuckle to hear Harry monologue about how Abigail has a nice eye reflecting on the fact that Harry can only see one of them due to the eye patch. But I also noticed in the overlapping sounds that Harry says, ah, when commenting on the eye. And that makes for an intriguing reaction. Hmm, yeah, I I hadn't necessarily uh, reflected on that in the sort of preparation of the notes here. I was sort of uh, thinking of, like, her remarking on, like, a nice eye. I will say that, like, while she acknowledges the eye patches because she first, upon first seeing James and Abigail, describes them as looking like a pair of pirates. Yes, Which is just such a delightfully, like, kind of (laughs) innocent way of describing it. Like, very sort of childlike uh, of sort of referring to someone like that. And, like, without any malice behind it, it's just, like, that's the context that she understands eye patches to be employed. But despite that, when we get a closer look, it's sweet, really, because a lot of folks would probably fixate on the eye patch on like closer inspection of the mm. face. But Harry is observing and remarking on the eye that she can see. Yeah. And it's a way of acknowledging what is there rather than what is absent. I think that that sort of, ah, when like commenting on it is her like appreciating that level of detail now that she is actually close enough to see it. We do see a bit of her internal thoughts about meeting these new people as opposed to interacting with the people that she has an existing relationship with, such Mm. as Frank and Annie, or in a little bit, such as uh, her response to Edison at one Mm. point. Another thing that I reflected on with Harry's part of the chapter here is the dynamics of the narrating voice going from third person to first person. Mm. It hasn't happened before. We honestly haven't had any first person narration since Tiger's Eye. But Mm. and in this particular case, when we have the switch, earlier in the chapter, James is ostensibly recording what happened in his journal after the fact, which is why he does third person with everything. Harry is present tense, ostensibly, quote-unquote, narrating into a Vox tube. This makes for a little bit of dissonance as far as the audio drama itself, as Harry's 
supposedly saying all this into a Vox tube includes internal moments that she isn't likely speaking into the tube for posterity, particularly mm. when she is in front of others and they would notice. I mean, one could argue, of course, that, you know, given the way her brain works, maybe she would have no problem narrating into a Vox tube, uh, even as other people are talking or anything like that. And they're all watching bemusedly. But I suspect that this framing is more of a stylistic detail and is not meant to be taken literally because mm -hmm. being present with Harry is important for us to be able to see her internal life, the way in which her brain works. That is different. You just have to think not too much about the way Alex chose to present it as it makes sense only as a storytelling choice and not something that is literally happening. Yeah, that that's pretty much the takeaway, isn't it? It doesn't have the same in-world consistency as the Vox Tube segments in The House of Versteckt, which, like, just as an aside for note-taking, I forgot how to spell that, so you know, <laughs> that's how we know we're back in familiar territory. Yeah. Uh, and that's okay, because, as you say, it's there to illustrate the types of character we're being introduced to, which is of paramount importance at this stage and of this particular book it also indicates harry being the character we associate with forward advancing technology because she gets to be the one using the fancy new vox tube whereas other characters are speaking or recording their thoughts in more traditional forms of recitation yeah that is true the vox tube is a complicated storytelling framework which Alex generally employs in order to get a specific shift in the manner of how the story is being told, such as, as you said, when the Vox tubes are being used in the House of Respect, or when Annie is recording Catherine's story about Weirwood, and having that be front and center as being an audio journal entry for the purposes of the cartographer's handbook, but is also just like a difference in terms of how that scene plays out person to person. Like this sort of thing would normally happen in a movie where everything tends to be like happening now, 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 now. Mm. And because the narrative framework is the subject, I will add that I did go back and see how James's narration was framed in Secret Rooms. For the most part, we don't see an audio version of how his brain works, except when he is audibly externalizing. Therefore, any display of James's own inner life is the measured tones of a journal entry, which moves at a different speed. I may have missed a moment here or there, but I suspect that using the internal framing of Harry and James is something that happens more frequently in these future books, and are also reserved for moments when that fits well in the narrative. After all, it's not terribly romantic to have James talk in clipped tones about overlapping thoughts about the feelings for the women in his life. I guess it makes me think a little bit about Alex's choice in general to have a whole bunch of this framed as journal entries rather than having everything be present tense the strengths and weaknesses of that because to a certain extent back when we were talking about secret rooms in general one of the things we were commenting on at one point 
is there's a different dissonance going on there in terms of everybody, not just James, but everybody remembering exactly the way everything played out to record it for posterity in a mm-hmm. journal entry. Whereas one might think that after an event has happened, the resonance might have been lost a little bit in the mind of the person experiencing it. And therefore, the way things actually happen might have shifted a little or you wouldn't have remembered specific details. But because this is a story, the recall is always perfect because we want the audience to feel like they're getting an accurate depiction Mm -hmm. of events as they play out, as opposed to the narrative device of sometimes having an unreliable narrator. If you're doing the unreliable narrator thing, then that's supposed to be highlighted as being part of the story rather than accidental because of the, the, the framing of the narration. An argument can be made for like it being a distraction, and perhaps that like some people are like, wait, I thought we were doing this kind of story or narrating mm-hmm. it in this way. And mm-hmm. I, I know that at one point that was the case with someone with uh, princess thieves, that there mm-hmm. was a bit of disjunction between like, wait, like what is the actual stance of the narrator characters? Mm-hmm. That tends to be something I don't concern myself with because I understand that the narration is precisely that it's a way of like narrativizing like mm-hmm. the like what we are seeing and that the like the most sort of uh person thing that we should be concerning ourselves with is the reality of the events being relayed to us mm-hmm. through the narration not like the physical act of someone narrating it it's kind of the prerogative of the reader and i think that, that can sometimes be a casualty of like making atypical uh, narration choices is mm. that sometimes it will add something and sometimes it will be a distraction. I will argue that in the case of Steamheart, that it works to have an amalgamation of mm. narration styles because that's kind of the point. We yeah. want to feel like we are collecting a range of experiences from people who experience the world in different ways secret rooms has the journals and the mm. uh like vox tubes because the idea behind it is that we're seeing a sort of regimented effort to explore and document the things that are out there including the really paranormal bizarre otherworldly shit and here like the emphasis is on the collaboration which means that you are going to not only get a range of voices but a range of narration styles. Yeah, that's going to become significant, particularly as we get further on into the story and we start including characters that have a (laughs) very different way of perceiving the world. And I'm not Mm -hmm. going to say more about that until we get to it, because again, we have to keep these episodes self-contained until... Mm. Technically, everyone would have caught up with us because mm. we need to future-proof this for new listeners and everything. Yeah, Uh, don't worry. All of this (laughs) is for tomorrow. I see what you did there. What what are you talking about? (laughs) We never give the game away. (laughs) I don't know. I feel like, according to other people's responses, we've done a sufficient job of containment. 
so to speak. Mm. One of the final points that I wanted to reflect on in this chapter is that I like we find out that Harry actually has an awareness of Edison's ego and therefore responds to him intruding on the more personal moment where she's introducing Steamheart to our other main characters. She wants to keep the attention on her. She likes the positive attention that she's getting. And Edison coming in, as he always does, wants to try to make it all about him. It reminds me of that moment in Arlington where he's trying to downsell what she does, calling her only helper Harry. And in this moment, we support her in her tooting her own horn, so to speak. She is saying, no, 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 no. I'm the one on stage right now, and I'm not getting off until I want to. It's someone manifesting the reader's feeling of, shut up, Edison, we want to hear Harry. <laughs> like, yeah, it's yeah. the story replicating what it knows we are feeling in this moment. Mm-hmm. But more than that, it's important to give Harry agency for so many reasons. Her voice shouldn't be diminished by Edison and folks with similar mindsets or, dare I say, appearances to Mm. Edison. And she gets to actively say, no, I'm not done making a statement, Buster, and I don't need to speak empty words about how fancy my tech is. I can literally have my baby speak for itself by roaring to life. And that's awesome. Is it just me? Because I obviously we've just covered Arlington in recent memory and looking about how she is presenting herself here and reflecting about how we see her through the eyes of Thomas or Frank or whoever else over the course of Arlington, which, of course, takes several weeks or months. I forget exactly how long the the story progresses over i don't have the um what's the word the timeline in front of me that that says Mm. the space under which all of this takes place going back and looking at the timestamps, butler first met harry on february 11th of 1883 and this chapter takes place on april 1st which means it's only been a couple of months in between the shire helper harry and this new, more outspoken Harry. Growth can happen quickly, if people are given the room to do so. But it just occurs to me that there was a time when I would have thought that Harry was, as you said a little bit ago, actually shy, and now it feels a lot more like she's exhibiting confidence after the events of Arlington, that Mm. she was more than happy to let Edison take center stage back in those early chapters. But when Frank approaches her and be like, no, 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 I'm more interested in hearing what you have to say about your Mm. creation that Mm. sets and helps set into motion a chain of events where she is able to go to her father at the end of Arlington and say, daddy, I, I don't want you in here. If we get swamped. You want to protect me so much. Well, well, I'm protecting you now. And 
Get out! Harry! Now! Or, or I won't drive another yard! Being assertive in a way that we wouldn't necessarily have expected of that early moment with Frank mm. and Edison and Tesla and everything. I think it is apt that as Harry's creations come to life, mm. so does she. Ah, oh, okay. Very well done, sir. I love that turn of phrase. Well done. <laughs> okay, well, that, I guess, actually brings us to the end of everything that we wanted to talk about for these four chapters. Did we just spend two hours talking about a single chapter? I mean, that's happened. We spent two <laughs> hours talking about a single chapter of Secret Rooms way back then. That's uh, true. So it just speaks to... Again, once we started talking about this, it speaks to the fact that this chapter four is so fucking dense with with the culmination of all of these different elements. And I think it also speaks to some of the stuff that we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation, where we can really manage to make a meal out of all of the smaller bits of the individual parts of a story. Yeah, I think I think it just speaks of like how Steamheart is dense, not just because it's a long book with many chapters. It's dense because, like everything else in New Century, chapters they're almost more than the sum of their parts. Like they are more than just this set of characters meets here and does a thing or mm-hmm. relays a thing. The way they are about them, the like where they sit in the story, all of it just has layers upon layers. And we are at the first leg of this journey, and there's already been so much for us to unpack, and I am loving it. Yeah. I don't know how this is actually going to play out. I suspect a good portion of our recording session today is stuff that I'm going to end up having to trim out, not just the stuff that you already said, hey, this is stuff that can't be in here because (laughs) it's future stuff, but also just because there were those moments where we had to stop in the middle and everything like that. that, As I said, that brings us to the end. We're going to have another four chapters the next time around, and who knows how long the pages of notes are going to be for that. I don't know yet. I do know that a good portion of it is going to be a summarization of an entire other book uh, as everything is brought together. And I don't yet know how much I'm going to have to say about that particular chapter. We've said a lot about that particular book. So uh, like maybe our episode for that is just see season three of through the window. (laughs) Exactly. Nobody count which season that is, by the way, like, (laughs) Nobody check what book we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. So we have started as we mean to go on. I am so glad to be here with you doing this right now. Mm. And we'll just have to continue to see where the wind takes us as far as the things that we choose to focus on, the stuff that we want to get into. The rediscovery of this part of the new Century Multiverse saga and what this big-ass journey means to us 
we're also going to be digging more into certain musical elements. We're definitely going to be talking about certain thematic elements. We brought up Lord of the Rings very recently, but there's another large piece of media that I want to relate to this particular story, and that's going to require a little bit of preparation from me so that I can speak in the right kinds of language as regards to a piece of media that is of a, not genre, but definitely of a culture that I am less familiar with, specifically uh, Journey into the West. One of the things that we ended up discussing at one point prior to is we looked at more at gothic tropes and themes and stories when we were focusing on Let Them Go in Secret Rooms. And in Tiger's Eye, we couldn't help but talk about the hero's journey, especially since that story was kind of written with that particular arc in mind. So the idea of a very specific journey narrative that is not the hero's journey, particularly since this isn't really focused on one person, this is an ensemble more akin to something like Journey into the West, which has many characters, even if one of them stands out as being like the big figure or anything like that. You know, this is going to continue to be an exploration. We're going to figure out about what works for this as we go along. And Steamheart in general is just going to be so jam-packed full of many different things, much like this last chapter we've covered today. So I think that this season of Through the Window is going to be as much of a journey for you and I as it will be for following the journey of our heroes. I honestly couldn't agree more. I've been making jokes for the last couple of years now about like what it's going to be like for us just going through this <laughs> book specifically. We're here! While, and yes, a, a fair chunk of that has been jokes made out of a place of anxiety to a certain extent of like, mm -hmm. oh God, how do we handle this? <laughs> but it really really is also overrided by so much excitement just mm. for the experience of doing all of this it's you, you don't get to have this sort of type of story and a type of like circumstances or platform to really go into it in as much detail as you and i have managed to create for ourselves and i hope that this is fun for you guys to listen to we're <laughs> we're gonna be on it for a while it's always funny i sort of forget that we are doing this for like an audience because in so many ways you and i would probably be doing this anyway so yeah like here we are and we would love to have you come along the road with us because yeah. it's definitely gonna be something else we will possibly have interruptions along the way um, mm. It's entirely possible that while we're deep into covering chapters of Steamheart, that all of a sudden Alex will come out with Castle of the Moon or something else. <laughs> We've also got other people that we want to talk to, potentially after the huge multiple session spanning interview with Alex and Sharon. We might try to get Ashdeep Singh Fora on even though he's mm -hmm. only been a small part of the of the new century multiverse so far 
I definitely want to get Victoria Luna B. Grieve on because I've never actually had a yeah, it is Victoria. <laughs> I've never actually had a chance to talk one-on-one with her, and she's been so integral to a lot of the foundational stuff of New Century along the way, it, whether it's stuff with her medical experience or bringing in the LGBTQ experience or even voicing characters like Virgil, you know? Mm, I forget she, that. Yeah, she's mm. she is... Definitely an unsung, significant component of New Century. I always love it whenever she's on an episode of School of Movies. She really adds something to the proceedings. So Mm. the chance of just being able to sit and pick her brain for a while is definitely something that I want to schedule. I just felt like we'd been interviewing people so long that I wanted to get back to just you and me for a while and get mm. deep into the analysis and everything before poking mm. her on her shoulder and be like, Hey, Hey, I'm pushing this button. When can we get you on the <laughs> podcast? We want to talk to you, Missy. I, <laughs> I don't it's, know what I'm it's, doing. It's, it's fine. We're at the end of a session. So yeah. it's all right for us to get a little bit loopy, but yes, yeah. to echo that it, has been such a delight. We've been talking about this like both on and off the show a lot that we have just loved this classic recipe of Through the Window has mm. been us two talking. But like, you know, New Century and all of the people involved in its production is filled with fascinating, lovely and very charismatic individuals. So it, the appeal not just to of an interview, but for just us, like as the interviewers, has always been there. And mm-hmm. ultimately, like we talked with everyone else who was on the Hades show, we may as well get the last person on the list. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Dear listeners, we have begun our epic journey of covering an epic journey. And we will see you next week on another trip through the wind door. Take care. It maybe feels a bit weird to not have our sign-off at the end of every episode. Long-time listeners know, of course, that I split up a Skype session into smaller bits so that I can put out each episode quicker. And in the old days, I made this clearer by showing that a specific set of episodes comprised a single Skype session. No one complains about it being confusing, though, and I still think it works better to have longer sessions that make up multiple episodes rather than shorter sessions more frequently. It's not easy for me and Toby to sync up, after all, and it's easier to talk about thematic stuff when we're at least talking about a bunch of related chapters. So for now, we're going to keep doing it this way. We do have a few outtakes at the end of our outro for you to enjoy, but on top of that, I did promise a piece on the covers of Steamheart last week, and forgot about it because I was running behind. The planned cover of Steamheart was always going to be the one Toby referenced a couple weeks back, with the massive vehicle herself making her way through the woods, the ruined houses in the background, and the skeleton hanging from a tree. Unfortunately, at time of final release, that cover wasn't ready. The artist that had been doing so much splendid work for New Century thus far, Antonio Torreson, has a specialty. Very good at drawing people 
not as good at drawing complex machinery or elaborate buildings. To assist, Antonio took the mock-ups that Alex had made and sent them to a friend that could 3D model them. In the meantime, Antonio would work on the background, and ideally paint in what his friend put together for Steamheart, placing it on top of the background. However, they were running too close to the final deadline, so Alex suggested that instead of pushing Antonio out of his comfort zone, a combination of all the character models that Antonio had already made for the book could be used as a cover instead. This was never Alex's ideal. He wanted the presence of certain characters to be a surprise in the book, and you couldn't surprise people if you showed them on the cover. But it was good enough, and to be honest, I always loved it because it helped me to visualize everyone together, especially those that had not had artwork done of them previously. The new artwork for Annie was, to me, capital P, perfect. And then many years later, Alex made contact with a new artist, Jim McGregor. And on top of doing the artwork for several new books in Phases 2 and 3, he was able to take Antonio's background, his friend's artistic modeling, and Alex's notes, and weave them together into Steamheart's brand new cover. I will always have a certain fondness for the old cover, because I love Antonio's artwork of Team Steam. But I have to agree that Jim hit it out of the park, bringing our heretofore unseen character to life. To close us out, one of the bands I was obsessed with in my 20s, and a song that came to mind when discussing having empathy for neuroatypical people. Until next time, this is Matchbox 20 with Unwell. Different side of me, I'm not crazy, I'm just a little impaired.
This was fun as shit. Yes, yes, and we still have so much more to talk about for these fucking four chapters. We I like we, I don't even know how long this is going. Like we literally. were really diligent. We were yeah. really like we were well behaved. We <laughs> we kept on topic, and we even had some like good like stuff that sped up. But we didn't like spend too long in it. We've been making a really good clip. I just talk so goddamn much in these notes. <laughs> I mean, you know, again, we play off each other, but it's fine. Like, while we were out in town earlier, I saw something which I was sorely tempted by, didn't get, but I think I'll probably get. It's a little neon thing that you can get which just says on air, and I'm <laughs> thinking of just having it, like, here, and when we start, I just hit that and, like... <laughs> um, just get, get back to me when we can so we can get this in stone and we can record the next bit and we'll have content for weeks. Content for weeks. We've started the journey. Yay! We've started the journey! Yeah. <laughs> All right, take care, Greg. This was fun as hell. We're <laughs> <laughs> <Or> overwhelming! <laughs> All of a sudden, we're just going like uh, friggin' Dragon Ball Z, just Kamehameha at each other. <laughs> <laughs> it's over 9,000! <laughs> But also, as an aside, you son of a bitch, I just noticed your t-shirt. Yes! Yes! Well, okay, so... This was a gift from Maureen. Lovely. I told her that I was interested in the shirts from Filmjoy, because, mm. obviously, I am an unabashed Movies with Mikey fan, but also, this is just one of the quotes that perfectly encapsulates me so mm -hmm. to be honest i couldn't see the like bottom portion all i could see was just empathy which <laughs> considering what we were talking about earlier i was like did, did he plan 
did he set me up to do that whole segment where I was going on about it and he wore that shirt just to subliminally plant that in my head? No. I mean, it's new centuries, so like it would have got we would have gotten there like anyway, one way or the other. Yeah, no, no, no. I I did not put this on with any intent. It's just this is the shirt that I threw on this morning, and it's a new shirt and it's a Maureen shirt, so I've been wearing the shirts she gave me at every opportunity. Every Maureen shirt is a good shirt. In fact, like just this last weekend, like uh, Sarah got me a shirt as a Valentine's gift. It is far less poignant because it's a Banjo Kazooie shirt, but mm-hmm. like she knows me. Like Banjo Kazooie is basically just my happy place game, so <laughs> that was a uh, good thing. Also, yes, like I did somewhat mold my personality after Banjo, or at least my personality feels like it could be compared to the goofy bear with shorts and a backpack, so go her. You know that I actually dressed up as Jack Torrance once for um, Halloween? Yeah. Mm. It was a cheap-ass Halloween costume. I basically went to the I went to the the thrift store, got Mm -hmm. myself an old plaid shirt like mm-hmm. the one he's wearing in uh, in the final mm-hmm. moments of The Shining. Got myself a fake axe. Cause, well, actually, it was a costume store that is also a thrift store. It's called The Garment District. That's, so, that's a sensible business direction right there. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So I got the shirt, I got the fake axe, and then I just didn't shave for a few days. <laughs> and I was able to put on the rictus grin to make me look like... <laughs> Little pig, little pig, let me in. <laughs> By the hair on your chinny chin chin. Fantastic. Yeah. Like, at one point, um, memorize that scene, that infamous <laughs> scene that uh, tormented poor Shelley Duvall when she's mm. like trying to defend herself on the stairs. And he's mm. like, Honey, darling. He didn't let me finish. I said, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to bash your brains in. I'm just going to bash him right the fuck in. (laughs) I'm not going to hurt you. (laughs) Yeah, so getting back to, um, getting back once more to secret, not secret rooms, getting back (laughs) once more to state. That was three books ago, keep up. (laughs) 